0: Good morning, everyone. So, what is in a name? You know, names have significance because of what people do. Uh, We can think of a name as having strength, like Arnold Schwarzenegger or The Rock. Uh, We can think of a a name. Is that right? So, we can think of a name as having intelligence, like Albert Einstein. You know. Um, and names can have heritage and history tied to it. You can think of people in the States like the Kennedys and the Rockefellers and all that. But names can um, also have um, something just because you've named someone you, you care for after another person. It shows a sign of love, a sign of respect, a sign of care. You know, names can bring forth all sorts of thoughts and emotions because the name reflects the character of that person. It's more than just a name. It says something about the person. There's one name that seems to have such an impact on people that no other name has. When you start to talk about this person, it really has an impact, and that name is Jesus Christ. It's funny because some people you talk to, when you, when you talk to people about Jesus, they can get so frustrated, so angry when you just bring up this name. And we're not talking about the name, uh, Jesus as like the New Age Jesus. We're talking about the biblical Jesus, the, the, the Jesus found in Scripture. You know, you can talk about other names like Osama bin Laden, maybe Adolf Hitler, or even someone like Jeffrey Dahmer. And these people, almost everyone will agree that these people were evil. But um, most people will not kind of get all bent out of shape at just bringing their names up or even talking about them or even maybe having different opinions on these people. But when we talk about Jesus, it's, it's quite different. It can become uncomfortable. It can be personal. The one person who never did anything wrong, that one person, and people want nothing to do with him. But someone evil... No problems talking about that person. See, you bring up Jesus and a crowd of unbelievers, watch them kind of melt off into the shadows. It's like turning on the lights of a dusty old shed and you see the mice scurry on off and hide from the light. Why is that? Well, I will say that because Jesus is personal. To every single person, he is personal. Talking about Jesus shines a light on sin... He's not some mere man, he's the God-man, and because he's God in the flesh, and since scripture says by nature we're God-haters, you will get all sorts of responses when you speak in that name. So today in our passage, we're going to get a front row seat of such a conversation. Uh, I've titled this sermon, The Name That Divides, and as you will see, it does just that. My hope is that... You will learn today a few things that will help prepare you and encourage and strengthen you when you engage in conversations in this name. So, if you have your Bibles with me, turn with me to Acts 4, verses 1. We're going to read Acts uh, 4, 1 through 22. But before we do, why don't I take a moment in prayer here. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the church. We thank you that we can gather in your name and we can lift you up high. Lord, we pray that you would open eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would encourage us and strengthen us in the words that will be learned and preached today, Lord God. Fill us with boldness as we think and preach and teach about Jesus Christ. We ask this in Christ's name. So Acts 4, verses 1, follow along with me in your Bibles. And On the next day, the rulers and the elders and the scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. For all were praising God for what had happened for the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So how did we get here? Well if you recall from last week Peter and John had healed this man as they were coming into the temple, this man who had been lame from birth and this man was so overjoyed he was leaping and bounding and he, he went into the temple with them and and everyone there saw this commotion, they saw this man who was healed, and they, they kind of flocked to them, and, and Peter and John. And very quickly, Peter and John had to find themselves teaching and correcting their understanding of what just transpired as to who it was that truly healed this man. And for the next few hours, we are told that Peter and John are teaching the people about the resurrection, about repentance and faith in Jesus. And so this brings us up to our passage today and our first observation in our passage is that there is an impact in the name. There is an impact in the name. That's verses verses 1 through 4. See, when you preach the gospel to people, it will have an impact. Some positive and some negative. Verses 1 says that, this commotion has finally brought the religious leaders before them. And we're not exactly certain what it was that brought them. It could have been the commotion that they just caught wind of it. It could have been that one person who did not like what was being said, and they ran and told on them. And we're told that who showed up was the priest. It was the captain of the temple and the Sadducees. Now, we all know what the priests were. The captain of the temple, he was like the chief of police. He was the one that oversaw the temple. In fact, it's very well, uh, highly likely that this is the same captain that we read about in John 18, 12, who came at night into the garden to arrest Jesus. And the Sadducees, well, these were priests that were extreme power when it came to anything to do with the temple. So this was like calling the police on Peter and John, Uh, just for talking about Jesus. And we read in verse 2 that we find that they were greatly annoyed at what was said. You know, it wasn't that they were just annoyed. They were greatly annoyed. And this, this word gives the impression, the idea that they were offended. It pained them. They took offense at what Peter and John were saying. Not at the miracle, but what they were saying. You know, this would be you know, it's like the people; these people show up, and suddenly the emotional climate starts to change very quickly. And you can imagine, if you're in the apostle's shoes, what would be going through your head and their their minds. These powerful religious leaders, these people who had the power and who were behind the crucifixion of Jesus, have now shown up, and they're taking offense at what they're saying. Why? What is it so offensive at what's being said? What well, we read, they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection is fundamental in the teaching of the gospel, and it's all through the book of Acts. It was always something that was such importance for the apostles to teach. Acts 4.33, for example, says, "And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus." But you can't ask, why is that a problem? Why were the Sadducees so bent out of shape of that? Well, we, we read in, in Matthew and Mark and Luke and later in Acts that the, the Sadducees never believed in a bodily resurrection. So that, that was something frustrating for them. And they clearly knew who Jesus was. Uh, it's very well likely that most of them were behind the illegal trial and, the, and supported his crucifixion. And so they hated Jesus and they denied a resurrection and now Peter's proclaiming both of these. And here's the thing that's very interesting. The healed man challenges their belief of of no resurrections. And why is that? Because if Jesus was really dead, he could not heal anyone. But an alive Jesus could. This is why they were greatly annoyed. And so what's the result? What do they do? Well, verse 3 tells us they arrested them. It's not as though they broke any laws. There's no indication from the text that this was on Sabbath. They could have easily enough just kicked them out of the temple. They've threatened others in that way. But no, they arrest them. And because it was late in the evening at this point, often they would have these trials, and there were open trials where witnesses could be brought. It was too late in the day for that. They, they decide to kind of throw them in the holding cell. Now, throw them in the drunk tank, if you will, and lock them up for the night. Uh, maybe that will cool these guys down, and we can kind of set them straight the next morning. You know, sometimes when you talk to people about Jesus, it's not always well-received. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, how do you respond when this happens? When others malign you, reject you, or persecute you? How does Peter and John respond? There's no indication whatsoever that they wanted to fight any verbal attacks, any resistance on their part. I think sometimes we can have this thought, well, I must have done something wrong because the conversation didn't go well. Peter and John had done nothing wrong. They were teaching truth. They had this miracle to back it up, and yet they're still arrested. Sometimes you may be left wondering, what in the world is going on here? Maybe I should go back and apologize. Maybe I, I must have said something to offend them. Know something, you're not responsible for the impact of the name. The impact of the name is not always seen by people, how people treat you. The impact of the name is God's department, not yours. Now, I'm not saying if you've sinned in your behavior or words, you've got to get right with God, you've got to confess that. But setting that aside, the impact is not your department note something. Su- success is not measured by how they respond, but by how faithful you are in what you say. Success is not measured by how they respond, but by how faithful you are in what you say. And so just as we've seen in this first few verses that the impact of the name can cause a negative response, Luke also adds something very positive in, the, in verse 4. He says, but many of those who had heard the word and believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. You got to ask, why would Luke take the time to add this verse in there? And I think it's to remind us something very important that even when things don't seem to be going as planned, God is still saving, still changing lives. He's still moving. You can take great joy in that, brothers and sisters that you are not responsible for the impact. You don't have to be perfect. I think it was Luther who said once, we are called to bring the gospel to their ears and pray that God brings it from their ears to their hearts. You know, over the years, I've done a lot of street evangelism. And I recall one time we were in Barrie, and there was a festival called Caravana, And it was earlier in the day, and I was talking to these four young guys, Three of them were engaged, they were attentive, they were asking questions, it was great. The fourth guy, it was an annoyance to him. Uh, He was a little flippant, a little standoffish. And, um, you know, you kind of focus on those who want to talk. And over time, you know, we finished up our conversation and and they went on their way. And um, it wasn't until near the end of the day where I am talking to this uh, individual and I see in the distance that one guy who was so annoyed, just kind of hovering, floating around. I thought that was interesting. So when I finished up my conversation, he, he he comes right over to me and starts talking to me. And I found out very quickly that he was actually convicted. You see, he had grown up in Africa and his father was a pastor. And since coming here, He had really started to kind of stray away, and he was so convicted that he actually called his father up in Africa. Now I have no idea what time of day it was there, but and he talked to his father, and his father was so overjoyed that somebody took the time to share the gospel with him that he actually wanted his son to come and find me so he could give me the phone to tell me that himself. Now he he didn't. He hung up. but he was convicted that he came back to talk to me. And over the next short while, I was able to encourage him and point him back to God's Word and encourage him to get into a Bible-believing church where people love you and care for you. So we don't know the impact the name will have. Some will get annoyed. This guy was annoyed, but he was convicted. It's not our department. We leave that to God, and we speak anyways. Some will dismiss it, and maybe some will smile nicely and say, well, that's nice, it's good for you, you know. Um, But some will respond, and some may come back. This can give us great relief, because as I said, you don't need to be perfect, just be faithful. The results are in the Master's hands. So what is it about this name? Why is there an impact in this name that leads some people to rejoice and some people to get quite annoyed? Well, this leads to our second observation here, and that's there is salvation in the name. There's salvation in the name. This is found in verses 5 through 12. See, in verses 5, we learn that on the next day, these rulers and elders and and scribes, they all come back. See, evidently, through it the night, word had really got out. People were kind of wondering, what in the world happened here? And what's really shocking about this is It's not just them, it's the whole high priestly family shows up. These are the most powerful people, religious people in the land. We read that Annas was there, he was the former high priest, he was deposed by the Romans, his son-in-law Caiaphas was set up in his place, Caiaphas was there, we read of two others there, and we also read that the whole high priestly family was there, there were others there. And then they bring Peter and John out. You know, I was thinking this, this would be very much like, you know, being called into your supervisor's office after having the small conversation at the water cooler with Jesus. And you walk in and suddenly there's your supervisor with all the managers and directors and HR and the owner and the board and legal. And they're all asking, what do you have to say for yourself? They want to know, what are you saying about this Jesus? Well, in verse 7, we find straight up, they asked us, by what power or name did you do this, this miracle? Evidently, they don't want to talk about the teaching. We know how they feel about that. But they want to know the power behind this miracle. Now, it's interesting. Peter has been known to have a foot-shaped mouth. You know what I mean? Like, he puts his foot in it a lot. This is not one of those moments for him. This is kind of the high moment for him. And we read in verse 8 that right before he speaks, Luke tells us, he says, he's filled with the Spirit. And this is something that's very encouraging and very important for us because Jesus had told them in the beginning of Acts, he says, you will receive power and the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is significant because Peter did not heal on his own of power and authority. And he was not speaking on his own power or authority. As an apostle, he had delegated power and authority given to him directly by Jesus. And see, as Christians, we are called to speak the word of God, the Bible. And that is where our power and authority comes from. I think it was Charles Spurgeon once said, how do I defend the Bible? The same way I defend a lion, I simply open the cage and let him out. Yeah. Brothers and sisters, if you're not certain, just open up the word of God and read it. And now, because you've been given the Holy Spirit as salvation, you can speak with boldness the truthfulness of Jesus Christ as found in God's word. And so Peter is going to just do just that, He's going to address the miracle, the power behind this miracle, and then now he's gonna sw- and he's gonna to swing to the hope of the gospel. He says, You want to know what power and or name did this man get healed? It was Jesus. Jesus healed him. Look with me in your Bibles, verses eight to ten. He says, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you. It is the name of Jesus. It's Jesus that healed this man. Now before I move on, I want to zero in on something specific that Peter said. As Peter alludes to Jesus' death, but it's a little bit more. He actually calls out their sin. He says this Jesus whom you crucified. You know, some people may think, that's pretty harsh. Peter, did you really need to say that? I mean, aren't they going to get angry? Maybe. Maybe they'll get convicted. The great theologian and evangelist John Wesley said, before I can preach love, mercy, and grace, I must preach sin, law, and judgment. Preach 90% law, 10% grace. Before you take someone to the grace found on Mount Zion, you take them to the law found on Mount Sinai. We see this all through the book of Acts. Acts 2, 23, 3, 14, 4, 11, 7, verses 51 to 53, 17, verses 29 to 31. It's law and then grace. You see, if someone does not see they are guilty in breaking God's moral law written on their hearts, why would they ever go to Jesus to find forgiveness? What Peter is doing is bringing their sin to the surface. And we need to do the same when we talk in this name. Some may say, well, Chris, isn't that just some scare tactic? You're talking about sin and hell. Yeah, somewhat, yeah, it is. But it's meant for people to reflect on who they are in light of what God says, so they run to Jesus and find grace. You know, we have commercials that are out there, that show what happens if someone drinks and drives. Is that a scare tactic? Yeah. It's meant for people to see the seriousness of their actions so they change direction and not perish. And so it is here. Law to the proud, grace to the humble. And Peter, he will continue this law indictment on them in verses 7. He makes a strange kind of statement. He says, for us, talking about a stone and a cornerstone. You know, he's actually quoting Psalm 118.22, and this was a psalm they would have really known. They sang it every year at Passover. And Psalm 118.22 actually says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. What does this mean? What is this cornerstone? Well, a cornerstone was the main stone of a building, and it was usually placed at the corner of a structure when it was being built up, and it was usually the largest, most solid stone out there, and once it was placed, it became the basis for determining all the other measurements as it was structured being built. In other words, everything was aligned to that cornerstone. And the religious leaders probably understood this passage to mean that, well, them being Israel, they're the stone rejected by the nations, they're the builders, and they will become the cornerstone. But here in our passage, Peter, he has to correct this understanding right off the bat. He says, this Jesus is is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. You know, Peter is saying, no, you Jewish leaders are not the cornerstone. You are the builders. You were to teach God's word, aligning the people to the word. You have been entrusted with the oracles of God. But now the Messiah has come, the stone. You have rejected him. This Messiah he has become the cornerstone. He is the focal point in which all else grows from. What is Peter doing? He's giving more law and hopes, like that guy in Caravana, that they would be convicted and be ready to receive grace. And after making this final kind of point, he then does move on to grace in verse 12, and he says, and there is salvation and no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You guys want to know what power or name we're talking about? It is the name of Jesus that this man was healed. And know that if Jesus healed this man, know also that it is only in his name that one can be saved. You know, the gospel is exclusive. Truth is exclusive. We know two plus two equals four, not five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. We live in a world where you cannot tell someone they are wrong. If someone feels something strongly, then it must be right and true. In a world where everyone is right, telling them there's one way to be saved is not only becoming intolerant, it's becoming hate speech. But Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Is the only Jesus, the God-man, he went to a cross. He took the wrath of God upon himself. He paid the sin debt. He died a sinner's death. He was raised to new life on the third day. He defeated death in the grave. And now he's seated at the right hand of the Father until he returns to consummate his kingdom. And he is calling all people everywhere to repent, put their faith and trust in him alone. There is salvation in no other name Those who do are forgiven, cleansed, born again. They are adopted into his family. They're given the Spirit of God, and he will never leave them, never forsake them. That is the gospel that people need to hear. But you know what? Knowing this and desiring this, if we're honest, it's still scary, isn't it? And this is where I hope our third observation can really encourage us. Our third observation is, there is boldness in the name. There's boldness in the name. This is found in verses 13 to 22. Verse 13 says, Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. These religious leaders were shocked at how they stood up and spoke to them. Peter and John were standing up to the most powerful religious people leaders in their day. And know, Peter and John were uneducated, common men. This was not an insult. It they, they just meant they had no formal training. They didn't go to rabbinic school. They didn't spend time in these Jewish schools. They were everyday people. They were just like us. Factory workers, bankers, garbage men, grocery store clerks. You fill in the blank. But something is so important that Luke says here. What's the difference? He says they recognized that they had been with Jesus. I think this is so key for us because you know, they had, their teaching aligned with Jesus' teaching, their boldness aligned with Jesus' boldness, but they spent time with Jesus. And can that be said of you today? How can you speak like Jesus and have the boldness of Jesus if you do not spend time in His Word and in His presence through prayer? See, you don't need a degree. You do not need to study for several years before you ever talk to anyone about Jesus. Just spend time learning at the feet of Jesus and leaning in on the great comforter and encourager of the Holy Spirit and share. You know more about Jesus than pretty much everyone out there already does already. John Bloom, co-founder of Desiring God Ministries with John Piper, he says of this boldness, he says, boldness in the biblical sense is not a personal personality trait. A typically soft-spoken, introverted, calm person can be bold at a time when a typically driven, outspoken, brash person shrinks back. Boldness is acting by the power of the Holy Spirit on an urgent conviction in the face of a threat. Let me say that again. Boldness is acting by the power of the Holy Spirit on an urgent conviction in the face of some threat. Peter was being bold. And what is the response? What happens? The religious leaders are left dumbfounded. They're left speechless. So much so, we read in verse 15 and 17, that they have to remove Peter and John from their trial, from their inquiry, and discuss amongst themselves, what are we going to do? You see, they're caught in a dilemma here, because if they penalize them for their teaching, they undermine the miracle standing before them and risk a riot from the people. But if they agree that this is a notable sign and do nothing, they run the risk that this teaching which convicts them, will continue to spread, and the people will turn on them, and they will lose their power and authority with the people. So after much discussion, we're told in verse 17 and 18, they decide to just threaten them not to teach in this name any longer. They do not deny the miracle, but they deny the name behind the miracle, and therefore, in a roundabout way, they're denying the teaching that goes with it. See, their threat was a warning and a command. It was not a gentle, you know, please don't share this name anymore. It was do not. You cannot talk about Jesus. You cannot teach about Jesus. We do not want to hear about Jesus, and if you do there will be consequences and you won't like it." See, they were so blinded by the hatred of Jesus that it didn't matter that this lame man since birth was healed standing before them. Often people who hate Jesus, they they not only not want to hear about Jesus, they don't want you to tell others about Him either. Now, I've been downtown numerous times where I've been talking to somebody on the street and somebody will walk by They hear what we're saying. They will turn around and come back to make some sort of derogatory remarks and kind of tell you to kind of be quiet. You shouldn't do this, only to go on their way. See, this name is a name that does divide. So how is Peter now going to respond? Now that there's actually threats tied to what he's doing, again, he responds with boldness. He says in verse 19 to 20, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. In common language, it's like he's saying, nope. (laughs) Not happening. We have to. We have no choice. We must, we must, we must. We have to speak of what we've seen, the resurrection, and heard the teaching of Christ. This does not always happen quite like this. Boldness doesn't work this way. Boldness doesn't always stick around, if you know what I mean. Boldness is not something that you get once in your life, and it's good to go, and you've got it. You just pull it out when you're ready to to need it. You may have it one day, and it might be gone the next day. It's something you need to continuously go back and pray for. You remember Elijah in that great moment he had? that great boldness standing up to Ahab and the prophets of Baal. Do you remember what happened right after that? His boldness vanished. In verse Kings, 1 Kings 19, 3 and 4, it says, He was so afraid he ran for his life and he even asked God to take his life. Paul understood this. We read this in Ephesians 6, verses 18 to 20. He says, To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints... And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am in a bastion chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And brothers and sisters, if we're lacking in boldness, we should pray for it. And see, all the religious leaders could do is reinforce their threats. The dilemma didn't change for them. They still had this healed man before them and the crowds were still praising God. And Peter and John never backed down, but notice something, neither did the religious leaders. See, we're not to stand bold for Christ in hopes that others back down. We stand bold for Christ because we have the King of kings and the Lord of lords on our side. We have the truth. He is sovereign in control of all. See, if you stand bold only in hopes that others will shrink back, when they don't, you will. Peter and John understood this and they stayed bold. They had that truth and we can too. Again, to reference John Bloom, he speaks of this Christian boldness and he says there are three, actually three components to it. There's conviction, courage, and urgency. And I found this very interesting. Conviction, he says, it's a spirit-filled conviction to see others saved. Do you have a heart and a desire to see people come to know the Lord? As for courage, he says, courage, a courage to step up even when threats or danger are possible. Do you have courage to share when you're scared? <clears throat> you know something, it's not courage when there's no fear present. It's not courage, <clears throat> excuse me, when there's no fear present. <clears throat> and finally, urgency, an urgency to share. Do you procrastinate and say, well, I'll do it tomorrow. There's always another day. It's funny how that, Tomorrow never seems to show up. See, you may struggle with all these. I know I do. But there's hope still. Pray, spend time in his word, and get around others who can encourage you in this. Peter and John were common people, just like you and I, trusting in God. So what do we take away from our passage today? Through the spirit of God and time spent with Jesus, you can, you can too share the name of boldness resting that God will bring an impact which will lead to some being saved. Through the Spirit of God and time spent with Jesus, you too can share the name of boldness, resting that God will bring an impact which will lead some to being saved. So again, I ask, what is in a name? Names have significance, again, because of what people do. But with this name, the name of Jesus, this name represents the very person himself, Is significant because of who he is and what he's done. What does scripture say about this name? People are to call upon this name to be saved. Healings were done in this name, miracles were done in this name. People rejoiced that they could suffer in this name. Paul carried this name to the Gentiles. Everything we say and everything we do is to be done in this name. And someday, someday, every knee will bow at this name the name of Jesus. There is power in this name. And when we identify with this name, we are saying we believe everything Scripture has has to say about him and everything he has to say about us. We desire to think, talk, pray, and act like Jesus because of his great love for us. He transforms us to be like him. And because of this, brothers and sisters, you can give to others what has been given to you, the name above all names. And you can do it with boldness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit, Lord God. We, we pray, Father God, would you give us this boldness? Would you stir in us that conviction, that courage, and that urgency, Lord God, as Peter and John had, to proclaim your gospel in the face of trials? And Lord, would your gospel go out to the ends of the earth and save for the fame of your name? And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.